And welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And we're very excited to welcome to the podcast Catherine Jan Ebright. Catherine is the, uh, serves as counsel with the Brennan Center's Liberty and National Security Program, the Brennan Center for Justice. And she's also the author of an excellent recent report titled Secret War How the U.S. Uses Partnerships and Proxy Forces to Wage War Under the Radar. So, Catherine, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, Daniel and Derek, really glad to be here. Very glad that you've taken the time to read through the report, found it interesting, um, and think that it's worth sharing with your audience. Fantastic. So, Catherine, our audience, it'll be a shock to learn, is probably not overwhelmingly familiar with constitutional war powers. So maybe we could start with the beginning about the early history of constitutional war powers. What what does the Constitution actually say? Uh, how is this reflected in the actual text? And then we could go from there. Yeah, so so let's start with the text, uh, which in, in law is always a good place to start. Uh, the Constitution, uh, in its text, says that Congress, not the president, has the responsibility prerogative uh, to declare war, which is to say to decide when, where, against whom the nation is at war. Furthermore, the Constitution in Article 1, which talks about Congress and, and its powers, says that Congress has the authority to create, to fund, and to regulate the military. Uh, furthermore, the Constitution imposes on Congress a unique responsibility for military oversight, which is to say that no appropriation for the military can exceed two years in length. There's no other part of Congress's appropriations power that requires that kind of, uh, you know, biannual review, regular review and reassessment. And if you look at the way that the founders were talking about it, and the public at the time was talking about these military authorities that Congress was going to have, um, there was an immense skepticism of having a standing army, of giving broad power over war-making to the federal government, you know, removing it out of the hands of the states, uh, removing it out of more local forms of control. Um, and so the founders really thought that, you know, this two-year iterative review was going to be this matter of momentous public discourse, congressional discourse, where we would have all of these safeguards built in uh, through the legislature, which moves more slowly than the president, uh, which is theoretically going to have this public debate and accountability uh, by, by putting those military authorities in, in the legislature's hands. By contrast, actually, the, the Constitution uh, says nothing, it, uh, says no specific enumerated powers uh, are in the hands of the president with respect to war making. The only indicia of any, any you know, power of the president is that the Constitution says the president shall be commander-in-chief, right? It doesn't spell out what that means. Um, it says that the power of the executive shall be vested in the president. So I love a good indicia, but maybe we could talk a little bit about what this suggests about... Mm -hmm. 
what did the framers is that is that what they're called in law the, framers founders either yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh what does this suggest about how they greatest human law? beings who ever yeah, walked the history. face of the earth Danny. Yeah. i mean come on i think george washington would have liked ap um so i think that um it, Oh, because of course, originalism is a very popular, if stupid, judicial philosophy. So what are the intentions behind these texts? Yeah, so I, I mean, without delving into different strains of originalism, we're going to hit both original intent and original meaning. So the founders, when they were writing this text, you can actually go and read like these little notes from the Constitutional Convention. They thought, oh, you know, we're giving Congress the power to declare war, the only power that resides in the presidency uh, with respect to that crucial decision of are we at war or are we not at war, is in times of necessary self-defense. So to repel an imminent attack, right? That's the word set of words that comes up at, at the Constitutional Convention. To repel an imminent attack, the president may take action. Um, and Again, these are these are concepts that are then given to the public via the Federalist Papers, via other forms of writings uh, by the founders who were trying to sell uh, the document that they'd created at the Constitutional Convention to the states that would then have to ratify it. And so it, it's really both a matter of original intent and original meaning, right? How the public at the time would have understood the document that we wanted the legislature, which is moving more slowly, moving perhaps a little more judiciously. Um, to be making that decision on are we at war, are we not at war, with whom are we at war. Um, and, you know, it's all, all well and good to say this happened in the 1780s. And, you know, if immediately we all abandoned those lofty ideas, maybe, you know, that would give us pause in saying, okay, well, that's an interpretation that lives in originalism, right? And it, it mattered in 1787 or whatever, and, and immediately cease to, to exist. But that's actually not the case. Um, and you see president after president in the early history of our country uh, really hewing to, and, and in some cases, like quite strictly, um, that idea that Congress was the locus of war-making power. Um, and so you have, for instance, in the early 1800s, President Jefferson, uh, when the Barbary states uh, were leveling a number of attacks and, and kidnappings, ransoms of American merchants, while Congress is out of session, what Jefferson does is he sends naval vessels to the Mediterranean uh, to, in essence, liberate those kidnapped Americans. What he does not do, though, is give authorization to those American vessels to do any offensive attacks. It is your role is purely to secure the Americans, bring them back. Um, they had no authority to, quote unquote, go beyond the line of defense even if those same vessels that they're you know, liberating Americans from continue to be out on the high seas. Um, and he, he asked Congress very explicitly, like, I need you to give me that authority um, before I can neutralize this threat once and for all. Um, and so that's, that's an early example. Um, you go to the Mexican-American War. Um, so flash forward to, you know, mid-1800s. Just one one quick question, because oftentimes we think about U.S. foreign policy as being overseas, but there's, of course, indigenous conquest and indigenous genocide happening now. Is there anything to say between 
that sort of in the early 19th century and particularly Jacksonian expulsions and things along those lines before we get to the Mexican-American War? I'm just curious if that has any relation to the topic here. It's interesting if it doesn't, but I hope you don't mind my asking. I think that that could have relevance, but, you know, as many things are in certain aspects of American history, it's it's pretty understudied and under-theorized. There are also provisions of the Constitution that allow the states, when they are, you know, themselves the subject of attack, um, to invoke otherwise dormant uh, war powers or war powers that they've ceded to the federal government. And so um, I think a fair bit of that history, uh, which, again, I'd say is probably understudied, under-theorized, may be looking at the state versus indigenous group history not to say that, again, that's irrelevant, um, but it's not something that has traditionally been a part of our discourse or research. Which is interesting because it kind of reflects the colonial nature of law theory, that that, that entire experience is just completely sidelined. But that's a, a neither a story for here nor there. So I'm sorry, can we return to the Mexican-American War and how that affects the story you're telling? Yeah. So in the Mexican-American War, uh, what happens is President Polk deploys U.S. forces to contested territory between the United States and Mexico. And perhaps unsurprisingly, those U.S. forces come under attack. He then goes to Congress and he says, we're in war, we're in war, give me war authorizations, give me war appropriations um, to fight this war, and we've only used you know, force, we've had to use force in self-defense. Um, actually, what happens in response to that is there is a measure of congressional inquisition to figure out is that actually the story? Is that how it, that happened? Um, and you have Abraham Lincoln and then then in the House of Representatives and a number of other representatives who make the determination that actually Congress has been lied to, um, that this wasn't a pure act of self-defense, that this had been sort of a, a you know, concerted, uh, manufactured incident. Um, and so they... The, the House of Representatives voted in favor of an amendment uh, that would censure the president um, and say that the war, the Mexican-American War, had been unnecessarily and unconstitutionally started. And so that's that's to say, you know, obviously the Mexican War, Mexican-American War still happened. Um, but it was this incident where you have, after the fact, Congress realizing, no, actually, this isn't how this process is supposed to work. Um, and we're trying to safeguard the process that was established in this document, you know, half a century plus ago. Um, and, and so, you know, you just see the history up until the 20th century where it starts to go off the rails a little bit. Um, you, you see this history of Congress really safeguarding its role as constitutional decider on matters of war and peace. Why do you think that is? Or, or what is, at least what does that suggest about the nature of American governance in the 19th century? In the 19th century, um, I, I think it's just to say that, um, you know, Congress understood what its role was and was not yet at a point where it felt it needed to or was politically, you know, advantageous for it to cede its role in, in matters of war and peace to the executive. I think another thing that really distinguishes the 19th century and the 20th century and, of course, the 21st century um, is even though you had the executive branch, you know, like President Polk paying, playing a little bit fast and loose with the facts, right? Congress was still able to figure out what actually the facts were 
Um, once you get to the mid 19th or mid 20th century, uh, you start to see uh, claims of an executive privilege for national security. So President Eisenhower, for the first time, pioneering this idea that actually the president can withhold information on matters of war and peace, on matters of national security from Congress, not just from the public, but from the lawmakers, um, because it's too sensitive to put in their hands. Um, and so once you have these layers and layers of secrecy, um, the impossibility of doing a congressional investigation into where are we fighting, who are we fighting, uh, it, it's just very hard uh, to do your legislative tasks seriously. So the big moment in American historiography after the Mexican-American War and the Civil War is, of course, the expansion of 1898 during the Spanish-American War and the seizure of various colonies. How does that play into your story, or does it really only change with World War One? I? I, I think, actually, the incident that people tend to locate as where, you know, maybe the train is skipping the tracks a little bit is... Uh, President McKinley's deployment of, um, I believe, around 2,000 U.S. forces to China uh, to help quell the Boxer Rebellion. Yeah, the Boxer Rebellion, yeah, yeah. Uh, because that occurred without congressional authorization. And so that's that's really the key question that we have here, right? Is Congress authorizing the hostilities that are happening? Uh, or is this really just the executive branch making the decision on where we're fighting? Um, and so, again, that deployment of several thousand troops to China was without congressional authorization. And I think it's fair to say that that's really the first, you know, split. Um, that's that's the first time when when you see the president uh, taking action without securing congressional approval. And that's, I believe, the early 19 or early 1900s. And even there, right, it's relatively small as an intervention, um, and there actually is a you know defense of U.S. citizens rationale um, because as part of the Boxer Rebellion, American missionaries were you know being attacked, um, and certainly you could say that it was a disproportionate effort to engage in self-defense. But that is ultimately how it was framed by McKinley to Congress, and there was some granule of truth there, um, and so. Yeah, like it, the 20th century is certainly the time when the United States like became a major player in the international sphere. But even even for that incident where, you know, we're we're starting to skip the tracks, there are still these ties to the original purpose um or or original, you know, structure, balance of power and in the speech that McKinley gives to Congress with respect to the Boxer Rebellion, he's like, "Look, this is self-defense." We're not at war with China. And, you know, we were told that this threat existed by American citizens. Is there any backlash from Congress? This is interesting to me. I, this is a part of the story. I have no knowledge. I believe of. that there was a fairly mild backlash from Congress, but that Congress had been notified pretty close to the end of that specific term. Um, and so just sort of the structural nature of change in Congress. And, and again, we get to sort of the question of information flow, right? When the president is taking action without that prior step of informing and having congressional debate, um, it makes it very hard to put the toothpaste back into the tube. And if the information is also being conveyed on the president's own terms, right? And so 
Congress maybe doesn't know the precise scope of the threat that's being quelled, um, doesn't know precisely what U.S. forces are doing. Are they in an offensive or purely defensive capacity? It, it can be challenging um, to, to engage in that proper legislative process. So the, the big 20th century turning point that you identify in the, in the paper uh, is President Truman's committing, com- com- decision to commit U.S. forces to Korea. Uh, in 1950. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, this does seem to be sort of a mask off moment. If you look at things like the Barbary uh, situation or uh, the Boxer Rebellion, we're we're still at least trying to claim some constitutionality in terms of self-defense. But this is like full on, we're just sending troops, uh, deal with it, it seems like. So what what were the arguments that Truman used to justify this? and, And how were they uh, received by Congress in light of this history of Congress kind of, you know, asserting its role or protecting its its role here, it seems to be, you know, they, they started losing it. Yeah, I, I think that this is, uh, again, the sort of issue where it's hard to put the toothpaste back in the tube. Um, and even if you are going to have a pushback on the, the principle, right, you're going to disagree with the legal theory uh, under which the war is started, you know, U.S. forces are already there. They're already under attack. Um, and there's a point at which Congress feels we're going to look very unpatriotic, right? Uh, we need to rally around the flag. Um, and so give the appropriations um, and, you know, basically green light this endeavor. Um, one thing uh, that Truman repeatedly said about the Korean War, particularly at the beginning, was it's not a war. It's a police action, right? And so trying to link it to these earlier historical events, like, you know, the several thousand U.S. troops to quell the Boxer Rebellion after Americans had come under assault, right? Like trying to link it to that kind of smaller incident. But obviously that was not the thing that the Korean War was. And so you would see over the history moving after that, um, throughout the Cold War, congressional rejection of these really expansive theories of the Constitution, of the president's authority under the Constitution. And that really culminates in the adoption of the 1973 War Powers Resolution. Sorry, Catherine, could you talk a little bit about the 50s and the 60s? Because normally the story is told as the, effectively the increasing centralization of power in the executive. Sure, there's a backlash in the 70s, but then it pretty much goes back to normal. But could you talk a little bit about the 50s and the 60s, about congressional resistance to the expansion of war powers? Uh, uh, and, and can you talk powers. about, you know, the, the the next stage that you talk about in the paper is is Eisenhower's uh, activities in Southeast mm-hmm. Asia, which I think you, if you talk about not being able to get the toothpaste pack in the tube, this was the time when you maybe could have under the, the subsequent administration. And yet he goes in completely the opposite direction. Maybe uh, we could talk a little bit about sure. that and, sure. and also what, what Congress is doing. Uh, so at this time, right, like sort of start of the Cold War, uh, we have the enactment of the law that creates the CIA. Um, and that law does not say, you know, the CIA can go out and do operational things, can go uh, support coups, topple governments, um, engage in hostilities, like contract with air forces or, or rather notionally commercial airlines, but really use those you know, airlines to drop bombs in Indonesia, right? Like nothing, nothing in the law says that or gestures toward it. Um, but there's some wiggle room in the sort of fifth part of like 
fifth, fifth subsection describing the authorities of the CIA that's like, and can do other things that are of this nature. Um, and that fifth function um, then was really you know, exploited um, because of the vague language that Congress had used um, to lead to, for instance, the use of proxy forces in Laos, activities in El Salvador, in Nicaragua, in Indonesia, and oh, obviously Iran as well. But it was very hard for Congress to understand that this was happening, if not at all, then certainly at the size and scope nature of what was happening, because the department of or the agency officials, uh, U.S. government officials who would go and testify in Congress in open sessions would just, you know, lie um, about what the CIA was doing, um, about whether you know we were dropping bombs, had forces uh, that were doing anything more than you know providing humanitarian aid in Laos, for instance. And beyond that, again, you could get stonewalled as Congress for information when, you know, something is splashed across the front page of the New York Times. So the U-2 incident, for, for, for example, right, we had a U-2 flying over Soviet territory airspace. It gets shot down and members of Congress are asking the executive branch, what was it doing there? Uh, what was the mission? Where was it going? And the Eisenhower administration just says, we can't tell you. And so, you know, if you're Congress and you're being stonewalled or lied to left and right about the size and scope of American involvement, and even for the handful of lawmakers who, you know, the CIA thought there are allies in Congress, um, right? Like we can give them a little bit more information. Um, in in the history of the the conflict in Laos, for instance, those handful of lawmakers could be flown into Laos um, and shown some American facilities, but they were still told uh, this narrative that these are very small operations were only supporting a very like robust, like independent indigenous force. Um, not we have created this proxy force of tens of thousands of Hmong people um, and, and Laotians who are, you know, actively fighting. Uh, the Vietnamese. So what does that suggest to you about American power or, or, or even more intriguingly, a conservative, quote unquote, like Eisenhower doing this expansive, u- using his powers in this expansive way? Very different, of course, than Robert Taft, who lost the early 50s nomination for the Republican Party. But to me, this does seem like a moment where there's a bipartisan consensus reached on the president basically doing what he wants in terms of U.S. foreign policy. Is that a misapprehension or what do you think? Well, this is this is more or less what the legal theory for the Korean War states um, in the opinion that's, that the Truman administration put forward saying, well, we can do this police action. Um, it says that, you know, the president has this near unbounded authority to conduct foreign relations um, and he can you know, advance the use of U.S. military force, perhaps short of like a all-out war, but can advance those interests um, unilaterally um, so long as, in his judgment, this is supporting, you know, vital security needs. And and so I don't think that that idea has ever left. Like, once you say that the president has all of this power, like, what kind of president is going to go in and say, no, I don't. I don't have this power at all um, because 
there are, in fact, many, you know, international interests. Uh, there are ways to look at uh, peace and security, national security of, of the United States. That, like, if you're taking a very risk-adverse approach, um, you maybe will say, well, I don't, I don't want an attack to emanate from this country, um, and so I'm going to, you know, affirmatively go and intervene um, before there's a problem that potentially could arise. Um, there are also circumstances where, you know, we, we talk or, or think about humanitarian intervention, um, and so maybe it's not immediately bearing on U.S. national security, but there is this sort of moral sense or, or public uh, demand for some sort of, like, U.S. response. Um, and so that's just to say that if you're the president, you're never going to say, I don't want flexibility, right? It's really up to Congress to say, no, you don't have that flexibility because in our, our rule-based order, um, Congress is the one who decides, not not you, the president. Um, and, and the problem is that, you know, once we've moved past a certain uh, part of, of the Cold War, um, I think Congress has really fallen asleep on its role. So, Catherine, your report deals with, um, you know, I think the, the history kind of, you know, is, is important background for this. Uh, but your report deals with one specific way in which the executive branch has shielded uh, foreign intervention from Congress. And, and, you know, we, I think people are broadly familiar with some of the uh, mechanisms that developed after the, after the attacks of September 11, 2001, the uh, authorization for use of military force, the 2001 authorization uh, that has been used to justify all manner of things uh, not related to that incident uh, ever since. But, but talk about what you get into in the report, which is these security cooperation authorities. Where does that come from? What are the origins of these uh, of these particular uh, tools, and and are they uh, you know what what is the uh, the rationale behind them? Yeah, so pretty early in the war on terror, specifically the war in Afghanistan, uh, the Department of Defense realized that you know if you have some white boy from Kentucky um, going into Afghanistan and trying to find the Taliban um, or trying to find Al Qaeda operatives, uh, he doesn't have the language capabilities, he doesn't have the cultural knowledge or the access um, to actually be effective at finding those, you know, adversaries who they're supposed to be pursuing under the 2001 Authorization for Use of Military Force, or AUMF. Um, and so what the Department of Defense decided to do was, uh, you know, who does have that information, who does have that access and competency? Locals. But we have no incentives to provide to local people um, to, to say, you know, like, please help us. Um, but, you know, who does? The CIA does. And so, you know, we were just discussing the CIA's ability to wield proxy forces. Um, one of the ways that it does that is by putting indigenous forces, foreign persons on, in essence, a U.S. payroll. And so the Department of Defense and CIA collaborated to take local Afghans and, and say, we're going to pay you to provide us with information. We're going to pay you uh, to help us fight the Taliban and Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. Um, but of course, then that's the Department of Defense relying on the CIA to use authorities that, you know, maybe they're of dubious origin, 
Um, and the DOD and CIA didn't like playing together. Um, it worked, but it was a sort of rocky relationship um, because, you know, it's additional bureaucracy to manage. Uh, sometimes CIA and DOD had different priorities or mandates. And eventually you just have Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld um, going around to Congress saying, please, please, please give us the exact same kind of proxy force or, or surrogate force authority um, so that we can ourselves directly pay uh, indigenous forces to fight for us, to collect intelligence for us. Um, and it's a matter of highest priority. Uh, so, of course, you know, everything, we're, we're still recoiling from 9-11. Uh, and Congress says, sure, like you, you need to fight this war uh, effectively. And so in 2004, it passes an authority uh, that I discuss in the report. Um, it's now codified at Title 10 of the U.S. Code, Section 127E or 127ECHO. And that allows the Department of Defense um, to pay surrogate forces, use surrogate forces who are supporting U.S. Uh, counterterrorism operations. Is this the first time in American history where this is codified in law? Um, it's the first time where it's been so explicit. So again, like what this is meant to do is duplicate an authority that the CIA already ha argues that it has, but we've we've sort of accepted. Um, well, maybe, maybe not us in the Right. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it wasn't on the books that said the CIA could do this, but now it is. Uh, it's law. Uh, it's it's understood that the CIA does this um, and has the capacity to do this. There's uh, been some really great reporting, I believe, in ProPublica on the uh, quote unquote zero units in Afghanistan. And so while the Department of Defense had surrogate forces under the 127 Echo Authority in Afghanistan, the CIA had its own surrogate forces um, who were also, you know, hitting targets on behalf of the CIA. And so that kind of illustrates already right there the kind of tension that Donald Rumsfeld was identifying um, between what the CIA wanted to do and what the DOD wanted to do. And really an issue of the left hand not talking with the right hand um, to say nothing of the, you know, deep issues with the the zero units and, and using surrogate forces such as, as a general matter for, you know, civilian harm, um, et cetera, et cetera. Why was Congress so quiescent? Um, I think it was, you know, a matter of this being really in the shadow of 9-11, uh, you know, people not yet realizing uh, that some of the national security claims that were being made at that time were, you know, really exaggerations or, you know, with respect to the Iraq war fabrications. Um, and so you're being told by the Secretary of Defense that, to prosecute this war, to get the people responsible for, you know, toppling the Twin Towers and hitting the Pentagon, we we need to have this surrogate force authority. Um, and I think another thing is when this authority was enacted, um, and, and even still today, the wording is very vague. Um, and so it's another one of those potential information flow breakdowns uh, where the department proposed language, that language is kind of circular. It's like, we can support foreign forces and irregular forces and private individuals who are supporting U.S. forces on their counterterrorism operations. Like, okay. Like, I don't, I don't think that there's anything that immediately jumps out as, you know, this is very suspect and 
And certainly the lawmakers at the time, even those who understood what precisely they were authorizing, had no no belief that this authority was then going to be used in Africa, right? No one thought, oh, the war on terror is going to be fought in Niger and Tunisia, right? They thought it's the war in Afghanistan. Maybe it's going to bleed over into the, the war in Iraq, the use of the 127 Echo Authority. Um, and, you know, flash forward to now, we know that in the past decade, um, the Department of Defense, particularly AFRICOM, has used 127 Echo uh, in many different countries. Uh, the uh, CENTCOM has also used uh, 127 Echo, these surrogate forces, um, in countries like Lebanon and Yemen. Um, and so as we've seen the exponential growth of the war on terror um, to all of these somewhat surprising places, uh, we've also you know, seen, seen flourishing and often the prosecution of the war through surrogates. Um, but that's one of the authorities. Um, and, and perhaps uh, the one where we can point to the most, you know, questionable uses, the most legal, you know, challenges. Um, in the wake of the 127 Echo Authority being enacted, Congress enacted another authority, uh, which was supposed to be a pure and simple train and equip authority. Um, and so it's not, you know, we're creating surrogates, it's there are foreign forces, uh, you know, partners who are affiliated with a formal government who were working with them, but, you know, we're highly trained, high, definitely very well equipped U.S. forces and our partners um, don't have the same kind of weapons and, and aren't on the same page, don't have the same capacities. Um, and so we want to be able to uh, work with them to give them those capacities because we think that uh, the local response is, you know, basically in Afghanistan, for instance, we we did a 20-year state-building program, um, not very successfully. Uh, but but the idea is let's enact this training and equipment authority, which now is codified at Title 10 of the U.S. Code, Section 333 or 333. Um and on the one hand, like you can say the triple three authority um, is pretty unproblematic, right? We, we've used it in many, many countries now. Um, so it's not limited to counterterrorism, training and equipment. Uh, it can be in support of maritime security, border security, um, cybersecurity. Um, and we've, we've used it in probably upward of 50, 60 countries, including like the Bahamas and you know, Indonesia, um, Mongolia. Um, and so some of these places, you know, there's not an active conflict. We're not, we're not so pressed um, about U.S. forces going and, and deploying to train and equip foreign partners, whoever they may be. Um, but there are other contexts, and this is something that I discuss in the report, where if you're deploying U.S. forces in a train and equip capacity to, say, Niger or to Somalia, uh, where there are local conflicts that are actively being undertaken, right? What then is the presence of U.S. forces going to lead to if we're co-locating with foreign partners that we're training? Is this then going to be some sort of springboard for U.S. forces to engage with their foreign partners against their foreign partners' adversaries, irrespective of who those adversaries may be? Um, and so based on really expansive notions of self-defense, right? So these 
U.S. forces who are deployed, obviously, they can defend themselves. Um, so unit self-defense. But also, the presidency now claims an authority to defend foreign partners in quote-unquote collective self-defense. And so if you're deploying U.S. forces to what is in the foreign context a war zone, right, where maybe the small national army is actively prosecuting a war against al-Shabaab, right, and they get attacked by al-Shabaab, um, now we also attack al-Shabaab. And that's actually the genesis of how the Obama administration decided that uh, al-Shabaab had to be covered by the 2001 AOMF. So, Catherine, this might be an ignorant question because I'm a historian, but like, of course, this, these things are going to be expansive. This has been the story of U.S. history, the entirety of the post-World War II period. How was this not discussed? <laughs> uh, like what? Like, it's so crazy to me that the, it's so obvious that these were going to be used in ways that weren't intended by only in Afghanistan or in Iraq. Are you kidding me? Like w- w- total ignorance of history. So I was just wondering what was going on. It, it's so wild for me to hear that. Uh, again, it's the 127 Echo Authority was enacted in 2004. The Triple Three Authority was enacted in 2005. That was a very, you know, I, I think for lawmakers, a kind of uh, scary time, right? Like first attack on U.S. soil since Pearl Harbor or something to that effect. Um, and still recoiling from that incident. Um, I mean, like if if you show me a documentary on 9-11, I will cry. Um, and that's that's two decades after the fact. Um, and so I, I definitely think that there's this part where the lawmakers weren't thinking about what is this going to look like 10 years from now, 15 years from now. Um, that's also true, of course, with the 2001 AUMF, which is you know pretty broadly worded, doesn't have explicit geographic limitations, doesn't enumerate the adversaries against whom that authorization can be used. And so there's only one lawmaker um, in the entire House of Representatives, who votes against the 2001 AOMF, and that's Barbara Lee in California. Um, and she says, this is just, for those of us who are familiar with uh, Vietnam War history, this is just the Gulf of Tonkin resolution all over again. Um, and so it's broad, it's going to be abused. Uh, let's take a moment to think about this and set some real limitations on it if we're going to decide that a military response is necessary. And of course, again, she's she's the sole dissenter. And so it wasn't really a moment when people were, you know, stepping back and thinking, okay, well, again, are we going to be using the AUMF in the year 2023? And are we going to be using it in Somalia? Right? Like that is so far from the realm of what anyone would have imagined, um, at least outside the executive branch. Um, and so yeah, I, I just don't think that this was on people's radar. Um, and with secrecy issues, right, it's very hard even now for lawmakers to get a full list of, you know, where are we doing 127 echo program? Where are we running foreign surrogates? If we're taking strikes in collective self-defense of foreign adversaries or, or, you know, our foreign partners adversaries, like who are the foreign partners we're protecting? Who are the adversaries that we're, we're attacking? What are the circumstances in which we would say this strike was actually defensive and not offensive. And Congress doesn't really get that information on a regular or clear basis. Um, and so that's 
that's a huge problem for understanding uh, the size, scope, nature of the problem. Let's talk about the third authorization that you you discussed, Section 1202. This is the military, the DOD, basically finally getting freed from the constraints, the shackles of the war on terror, and now we can do uh, irregular foreign forces uh, in in response to, uh, oh, I don't know, certain state actors that we don't like very much. Can you talk a little bit about the genesis of that? Uh, and uh, what was the, I mean, what was the prompting? Because I, I think when 127 uh, was adopted, it, it, there was an explicit attempt by Congress or an explicit move by Congress to limit it to counterterrorism. Why does that change? What, what causes Congress to, to even give up the, the ghost on that front? Yeah, so great question. Uh, the 1202 Authority, uh, which was enacted in 2017 through the 2018 National Defense Authorization Act, or NDAA, uh, is basically 127 echo, except for quote-unquote irregular warfare. Um, there's a pretty clear understanding that uh, in moving past the counterterrorism surrogate force to the irregular, surrogate, irregular warfare surrogate force, you're looking now at great power competition. And that's precisely the thing that the Department of Defense and the White House said, well, we need to be prepared for it, right? And on the Hill currently, um, I'm not sure how much this has penetrated public discourse outside the Beltway, um, but people are constantly talking about what's going to happen when we go to war with China, right? And very intentionally use the word when, not, not if. And that's a really terrifying prospect um, but that's the thing that that people have been thinking about or talking about on a regular basis um, in this space. And so the Department of Defense went to Congress and said, you know, like, look, 127 Echo has been so successful. Right. There's a general who marched into Congress and said that 127 Echo has been used to uh, defeat or disable thousands of high value targets, terrorist targets. Um, of course, then you had Nick Terse at the Intercept um, go to the Department of Defense and say, uh, do you have a list of these thousands of high-value terrorists, high-value targets, like a- any sort of recordation? Um, and the Department of Defense said, no, we actually don't keep that data. Um, and so sort of bracket how you could have a general uh, going into Congress and saying, like, just trust them. I, come on, you know, they're honest people. It's, it's no reason you can't just... And just corporate vibes, you know, thousands, how many thousands, we don't know. But Congress had been told that 127 Echo surrogate forces were very, very effective, is is the point. Um, And they were also told that great power competition was a threat on the horizon. Um, And so uh, Congress was told, we we need to have this authority. We need to have the surrogate force pool uh, for countering... uh, near peers like Russia and China and rogue states like Iran and North Korea. Um, and Congress complied. And, and I keep saying Congress, um, but I also do want to distinguish that Congress is not a monolith. Um, it is specifically the Armed Services Committee and generally a handful of members on the Armed Services Committee who are the gatekeepers of the National Defense Authorization Act, which is an annual, quote-unquote, must-pass piece of legislation 
which can be thousands of, or over a thousand pages, thousands of provisions. And so if you want to slip in some sort of innocuous seeming language that's circular, just providing support to other, you know, foreign groups that are providing support to us um, for regular warfare purposes, right? It's not going to make headlines. Um, it's not going to be on the radar of even most of the members on the Armed Services Committee, uh, even though that committee is responsible for that piece of, primarily responsible for that piece of legislation, right? It's it's There's going to be a handful of people who know what this is. Um, it's going to be buried somewhere in a thousand plus pages. And Congress isn't going to be getting, you know, regular updates that go to the member offices saying this is how the authority is being used. And so I think that there is um, a very large information shortfall uh, on the Hill about what these authorities are and what risks they pose um, and, and how they've been used, right? So the surrogate forces, like it's not simply like, oh, you know, maybe maybe as a matter of policy, we find the use of, of surrogates distasteful. Um, but my job, you know, as a lawyer um, at the Brennan Center is to think about the constitutional questions that are being posed by our use of partners, including surrogate forces. And it's, you know, are they being used in contexts where there actually is not congressional authorization for us to engage in hostilities, right? There's no AUMF for China. There's no AUMF for um, Russia. Um, but they're also, you know, in the 127 Echo context, again, we've, we've used those partners to pursue Boko Haram in Cameroon. But does the 2001 AUMF cover Boko Haram? Uh, the Obama administration uh, published a, you know, framework report explaining its concept of the 2001 AUMF. Uh, the Trump administration and, and Biden administrations have published their own framework reports uh, that clarify how that interpretation has developed. Um, never in those framework reports or in congressional testimony uh, has someone at the Department of Defense, White House, State Department, so that the 2001 AUMF covers Boko Haram. And yet we know that we have commanded surrogate forces to pursue that group. And so that's just this big question mark, right? Investigative journalism has told us that maybe there are hostilities that are ongoing through surrogate forces, uh, that maybe through creative lawyering, uh, people at the Department of Defense and Department of State are saying, well, if it's the partners doing the fighting, we don't need authorization. Or maybe they're saying... If it's the partners doing the fighting, we can use exceedingly tortured and non-public interpretations of the president's inherent constitutional authority or of the 2001 AUMF uh, to to say, you know, go out and, and do the, the, the fighting. Um, and if you're not telling Congress on a regular basis, you're not telling the member offices and you're certainly not telling the public where that fighting is happening. Right? Like who, who's going to call you on it? Right. And, and how are we going to know about these dangerous legal interpretations that then can serve as a loaded gun when maybe, uh, there is a conflict with a much higher potential for military escalation? I, I have a question in sort of the legal world. Do people still envision the United States as a democracy? Yes. Okay. So there's no like normative critique that this is obviously an undemocratic system. It, it's so obvious like yeah i mean like i'll say i'll say like and, and i do i i think in the report i have said that it is undemocratic i've certainly said 
in you know interviews with uh, amazing podcasts like American Prestige. <laughs> yes, yes, but I mean, there it, it's not just you know uh, a handful of libertarian or uh, progressive podcasters who are interested in this subject, right? The the Washington Post ran a piece on uh, now suspended twelve oh two programs uh, in Ukraine. Um, and how the Department of Defense is angling for uh, the ability to resume those 1202 programs, going to Congress and saying, please, please, please give us a broader authority. We promise it won't lead to combat. Um, and so... But like the professors at the elite universities, obviously, the sort of hegemonic discourse is that this country is a democracy, effectively. Or is that wrong? Is there now a critique? I know Sam Moyne is at Yale, but there's one Moyne and a million other people. So I'm just like, what is sort of the, the valence of the world here? I guess... Are, are younger people different, having grown up in the war on terror? I, I think I would distinguish, like, as a personal matter, I would distinguish this is an anti-democratic process. The way in which war-making happens in this country has been thoroughly you know, divorced from what the Constitution says, what our rule-based system says, um, and what democratic accountability requires, right? I, I would divorce that from saying, you know, our country is not a democracy, right? It is one facet of what it means to live in, and, you know, I would argue one of the most important facets of what it means to live in a democratic society. Um, but I also understand that, like, people are going to weigh things differently. Um, and, of course, like, the Brennan Center on a whole, right? Like, I work on our liberty and national security team, uh, but we have a very sizable uh, democracy team that focuses on the protection, for instance, of voting rights. Um, right. It's voting rights. It's a procedural democracy. I mean, I would yes. say for the last yeah. hundred years, we've just defined democracy procedurally, effectively defining it down uh, as a concerted effort to ensure that the quote unquote masses <laughs> don't impact things. And national security is usually the vanguard of that process because it's one that you could make the argument is so existential. But I mean, I, I just personally don't don't see this country as a democracy in any meaningful way besides we get to choose our elites every couple of years. But that's probably a large kettle of fish to open up 45 minutes into the conversation. Sorry to have done that, but it's just so like wild to me, <laughs> you know, this whole process. Well, I think, you know, one thing, and, and no names named here, um, I was speaking to a congressional staffer for a congressperson who is on one of the relevant committees for my issues. Um, and that staffer works in comms and, and they said, you know, I'm glad that you think my congressperson is so effective and is doing a, a great job on these issues. Um, like has a thorough understanding of those issues and is one of the handful who, who you could say that about. But if I could get my congressperson off of that committee, I would in a heartbeat because voters don't care. And I mean, Talk about disheartening things to hear from one of your partners on the Hill. Um, but at the same time, it's, you know, I, I understand that sentiment. Like if, if the question is, how do we make sure that there's bread on the table in America? How do we make sure that anti-discrimination laws continue to exist in America? Like those are things that are much closer to you know, most Americans' identity, most Americans, you know, well-being as they conceive of it, um, then are we supporting an autocracy in the Sahel in Africa? Like, 
people don't know what the Sahel is. And I think that that's regrettable. I also think, though, um, that the reason that we've become a fairly illiterate society with respect to our foreign military footprint um, is because it's just so hard to get information on it, right? Like, if we can't talk about it because we don't have information, right? Like, I, I know that the New York Times, for instance, has been doing some investigation into some of the authorities that, you know, I've written on. Um, like, they filed a FOIA request for information regarding 333-127-ECHO and 1202. Um, and they, in the wake of filing that FOIA request, had to file a FOIA litigation, to get those documents. Um, but, you know, if you have to go through a litigation process to make headway into your research, you have to try to, you know, find the right retired generals to talk to you, right? It's a lot of legwork. And really, you know, not not a lot of people have the bandwidth to do that. Uh, the outlets that are going to pay people to do that maybe don't have the same uh, readership. Uh, once you do have enough to write a story, you probably have enough to write one, maybe two stories. Um, and that's not going to, you know, make this huge dent in the conversation, uh, which so often is is governed by, you know, Disney is now suing Ron DeSantis, right? Um, and so it's it's hard. Um, but I do think not not to be too dreary about it. Um, I do think that the report has brought not only some media attention but also attention on the Hill. Um, to these specific authorities, um, that when I've talked to staffers about the authorities, they're often like, I have plugged away trying to understand like what this is. Um, and I just, I, I've been told I don't have the requisite clearance to go to these meetings. Um, or I don't have the requisite clearance to access the notifications and reports that the Department of Defense submits to four people on the Hill. And, you know, those four people, are they able to handle the immense wave of information that they are supposed to be parsing through, which of course is not only on this very narrow subset of Department of Defense activities, but you know, a much broader set of things that the 830, 800 plus, 800 plus billion dollar administrative agency deals with. So Catherine, I, I think to bring things full circle back to uh, the the question that we started with, which is the role that Congress plays in uh, determining where and how the U.S. military is is used. Um, you know, I, I we've seen some efforts, some kind of minimal efforts, at least, to try and claw back some congressional authority. We've seen people like Bernie Sanders, Mike Lee, Chris Murphy go after the war in Yemen and try to, you know, invoke the War Powers uh, Act in that, which seems like the lowest possible hanging fruit, and yet it, it goes nowhere. Um, and I, 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 I wonder if, and you, you sort of alluded to this, it sort of leads me into this question, you sort of alluded to the fact that this stuff doesn't play politically. There's only downside for representatives and, and, and senators to get involved in this, uh, in, in military affairs and actually take responsibility for them. Uh, because people don't vote on it uh, in the affirmative, but if something goes very wrong and you take blame, that is a, a huge political risk for people to take. So there is some incentive uh, on the part of Congress people to to just happily cede this authority to the president. And and given that, what needs to be done here to kind of uh, 
bring some uh, some level of oversight and control to these programs that have gotten uh, so out of control? And do you envision Congress actually being willing to take that step uh, and and assert itself in that way? I think that this is maybe one of those cases where horseshoe theory had some applicability. Um, I think on the political right, we're seeing a moment where uh, not only libertarians, but also uh, people of the America first mentality, people who also think that, you know, the big adversary is China and we need to close out the war on terror. We need to close out any potential for U.S. forces to be distracted in other parts of the world. Like these are people who are thinking on the political right. Like, we need to have some reforms on the political left. Meanwhile, you, of course, have progressives who want to close out uh, these wars, not only because of dubious constitutionality, legality, um, but because of the moral implications and civilian harms. Um, There are increasingly in the sort of center-left segment of the party people who are concerned about the legality piece. Um, lack of transparency, you know, 20 plus years. Um, And so we've seen more chatter across the aisle on constitutional war powers. Um, And so this is maybe, you know, strike while the iron is hot, a a particularly good time to to engage in conversation with Congress about our military footprint and and the appropriate separation of powers. Um, You see, for instance, Matt Gaetz um, introducing various war powers resolutions, one for Syria, uh, recently one for Somalia. Neither of those passed. Uh, they each, however, got over 100 votes, uh, bipartisan basis in the House of Representatives. There are a number of reasons why, you know, those are imperfect vehicles brought by Matt Gates, like uh, very intense politicization given who was sponsoring. Also, you know, some, some questions about drafting of those documents um, and whether they were actually you know, going to accomplish the things that they were saying. Um, But that's been happening. Uh, Representative Meeks, who's the ranking member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, recently introduced an effort to um, substantially limit the 2001 AUMF. Of course, you know, groups like the Brennan Center would prefer outright repeal. Um, But you know, proposing to close out all of our activities in Africa and limit the use of that authority to really just Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, so, so this is a kind of conversation that Congress is willing to engage at the moment. And with respect to security cooperation in particular, I think that, not, not simply I think, there are offices that are working actively on developing and ultimately introducing uh, legislation that would rein in and improve oversight of these specific authorities, the triple three, one twenty seven echo and twelve oh two authorities, sort of understanding that the way that we've ended up so embroiled in the conflict in Somalia, the way that US forces in twenty seventeen were tragically ambushed in Niger, right, that all ties back to the use of these specific authorities. And so, you know, how can we well, you know, if you pass a, an update to the AOMF that says uh, look, don't use the 2001 AUMF uh, in Africa, right? Sort of understanding that that doesn't really solve the entire problem. You also need to address the subject of, of 
you know, the secret war report, which is security cooperation enabled hostilities. Um, and so I don't know that <laughs> these legislative efforts will pass in full. Um, you know, that'd be very optimistic. But as we've discussed multiple times, the National Defense Authorization Act is a very long piece of legislation, must pass vehicle. Um, and I think that it's, you know, reasonable to expect that whether in this NDAA cycle or the next one, uh, we could have some language that that tries to set some guardrails and improve the information flow between the Department of Defense and, and Congress. Um, maybe that's a half measure, right? In the report, I say, you know, we should just repeal this. Um, but I, I would prefer a half measure to, to no measure and, and this all spiraling out of control even more than it already has. Catherine Yanni Bright uh, from the Brennan Center, thank you so much for coming on the program. The report, again, is Secret War, How the U.S. Uses Partnerships and Proxy Forces to Wage War Under the Radar. We'll have a link in the show description. You guys should check it out. It's an important piece of work. Uh, Thanks again, Catherine. Yeah, thanks. I I mean, I wish that this were a more cheery subject. Uh, (laughs) We don't do cheery on this show, so, you know, (laughs) wouldn't be here, I think. (laughs) That's not our not our area. But thank you. Really, thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. 